minus 10. Welcome to Laser Focused. Together, we make the impossible possible. Now here's your host, Renette Youssef. Welcome to Laser Focused, a podcast that takes you on the journey of discovery with the leaders that are changing the world with new design and revolutionizing how we think of advanced manufacturing. I'm your host, Renette Youssef, CMO and Brand Disruptor at Vela3D. On the show today, we have the co-founder and Chief Executive Officer of Barter Space Industries, William Brewey. William is a leader, engineer, and entrepreneur in the aerospace industry whose vision for the future involves building factories in space to produce earthbound products. He joins me now to talk all about building the world's first commercial zero-gravity industrial park in orbit at scale. Please welcome William Brewery. Hey, welcome, Will. I'm so glad to have you on the show today. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. (laughs) This is going to be interesting. I have no idea about manufacturing in space, but I can't wait for the conversation and talk more about it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Same here. Okay. So something I heard you say in another interview while I was doing my research was that while you were interested in space from a young age, you didn't actually think of it as a career till later in life or later in like when you went to college. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that moment when you realized that you could make a career out of it. <laughs> and you're uh, <laughs> I am I'm trying to think of uh, the most professional way to explain the story. So uh, I was uh, a little bit delinquent on selecting, a, okay. filling out my paperwork for my major. Okay. You don't have to declare a major until I think it was sophomore year. And so um, I knew I wanted to do physics. And so I kind of prepped myself for that. And I was going up the hill to the engineering registrar's office to officially declare. And I was a little bit hungover from the night before you know, being <laughs> college on the weekend. And I walked into the engineering registrar's office and there was a poster with a bunch of engineering stuff. One of the posters was, had a picture of Sally Ride. And I was literally like, oh, you know, she has a similar background, like engineering physics at a good school. Like that's a decent background for something space related. So, uh, you know, if these people can do it, I could do it. I bet, or at least I'll give it a try. So, and then that kind of like gave me the extra courage. That was my last thought as I was declaring, you know, the major and started looking at the career center. (laughs) That is crazy. But it's something that I've actually learned on this podcast as I've been interviewing guests. It's not unusual. I've had other guests say they didn't know what they wanted to do. And then I've also heard people say Sally Ride has influenced their their career. Like Tess, you know Tess. So so it's really funny how you you all have something in common. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Yeah, we have some mugs around the office that say Sally Ride or Die. And so uh, Ah. uh, I don't know where they've come from. I didn't buy them, but they just are peripheralated throughout the office. I love that. I need to get one. (laughs) So something else about you that I learned was that while you were still a student, you researched, developed, and built a power controller system that's still in use today in Cornell's synchrotron. Is that right? Synchrotron? Yes, synchrotron. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Accelerator. What can you tell us about that experience and the impact it had on you? Yeah. So uh, let's see. I was was taking engineering physics class, and I asked one of the professors if there was any additional like research on the side I could get involved with, and he connected me with some folks over at the Synchrotron Lab, and they were really great mentors because I had no idea what I was doing. But the project was to build a power controller that 
the way it works is to draw a very high vacuum in a synchrotron. So you're moving electrons around really quickly. And so you don't want any matter or any atoms in the way. So you have to draw a very extreme vacuum. And so one way to do that is similar to like a light filament. You put a titanium filament in the vacuum and then you run a bunch of electrical current through it, which boils off some of the titanium. And so those titanium atoms then actually raise the pressure because they're now in the volume, but then they're very reactive so that they stick to the walls and they act kind of like glue. And so any remaining particles that are in the vacuum will stick to the titanium that's sticking to the wall. And so you'll, by running electric current through the filament, you'll see the pressure go up a little bit, but then go very, very, very low. And so you want to be able to control the amount of current going through such a filament so you can control uh, the amount of titanium released and, and the vacuum and not burn out the filament and that sort of thing. So I designed the electronics to control that current and that filament. That's amazing. And you're still a student. Yeah. 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 Although uh, yeah. <laughs> it took me uh, probably like nine months to build. And, you know, today looking back, it was like, oh man, uh, I stumbled over. It was very nice of the professors and the folks at the Synchrotron to kind of let me stumble until I figured it out. Well, I imagine that's also played in your life, you know, like learning and failing and, and, and just being resilient to failure and learning. So I think I'm sure it has some lessons. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was actually just talking to one of the interns here at Varda who has the same major as I did at the same school. And he was, you know, asking me, oh, what should I do with this major? Because it's a relatively broad major, uh, you know, physics. And I was like, hey, just try something for a couple of years. And if you don't like it, try the next thing. There's no shame in, in changing and failing and that sort of thing. So that's basically yeah. my career just <laughs> over and over. Important lesson and no shame in trying and failing and learning. Yeah. So, yeah, I live by that. So, okay. SpaceX, I'm sure you get asked about this a lot, right? So after university, you began your career at SpaceX in 2012, working first as a hardware development engineer. What was it like in those early days at SpaceX and what did you learn from that to take on in your career after? Yeah, one of the first things I learned was kind of the aspect of, they call it at SpaceX and, and we have this concept at Varda as well, the responsible engineer. Uh -huh. What it means basically is that you own whatever deliverable that you've been assigned in good times and bad. And so, you know, they'll never overrule you on a design decision. They'll, they'll question you until the cows come home. But at the end of the day, you have full authority over the actual design and no safety net, or at least no perceived safety net underneath if you make the wrong decision. So that level of trust and responsibility was something that I've never experienced before as, you know, a young adult, never being trusted. I was never really trusted with anything. And now I'm trusted with <laughs> flight space hardware. So that was a really cool feeling. And that level of that attitude of, you know, there are times when it's not your fault, but it is your problem is one that I have carried and tried to share with those that I work with. Wow. I've never heard about that responsible engineer, but I think we can apply it into all of our like roles. Yeah. In fact, we were on a, a company trip doing a test for the spacecraft uh, a couple of weeks ago and it's come so naturally. Like you, some, with the engineer, we were cooking dinner in a large Airbnb and, you know, someone's like, Hey, who's, who's the RE of the potatoes over here? <laughs> you know, who's the responsible engineer for the potatoes? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so engineering of you guys. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So while, <laughs> while at SpaceX, you were also a spacecraft operator and you flew SpaceX's Dragon 1 spacecraft during every phase of flight. So on various missions. Like, what was that experience like for you, especially, you know, you were talking about the, the responsible engineer and then moving into this role? 
Yeah. The, at first the experience was very similar to when I first started SpaceX, where I was kind of a, a reoccurring theme here already in the interview of, Oh, I've, I'm totally in over my head of <laughs> capability, but for some reason these people are trusting me. So I'm going to do my best. But, uh, so that was the, that was the first kind of feeling, but the rest of it is really neat. Um, operations engineering is one that I think is sometimes underappreciated by the hard sciences engineering. I, I certainly underappreciated it, but it's, it's really cool because it's applicable throughout like day-to-day -day life. So the one I, I like, uh, I realized I was starting to think like an operations engineer when you know, those fobs that, uh, you can like unlock or, or lock your car remotely. I realized that every single one of those it, it, to unlock the door or to lock the door, it takes a single button. But if you want to pop the trunk, you either have to press it twice or press and hold. And the reason why every one of them is like that is because popping your trunk is something that you can't undo with the fob. You'd have huh. to actually physically go and close the trunk. So they're making you be like, are you sure you want to open the trunk? Like you have to do something a little different this time. And so that kind of engineering, you know, you pick up on day-to-day -day life when you start to think about operations. So it was neat to kind of like learn that way of thinking. I knew I was going to learn so much on, on this call. I don't know why, but I, that is awesome. And every time I'm going to double click my remote, I'm going to know why. Okay. So after almost six years with SpaceX, you decided to move on and begin a new career and this time completely different as a director of global equities technology for Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. So one thing I love asking is like, what was that transition like for you? Because I've met so many entrepreneurs on this podcast that have done that. They've gone from like large companies to smaller companies and starting your own thing. So what was that transition like for you? It was a lot of fun. It was also less extreme than I think maybe perceived by the general public because for whatever reason, it didn't seem like a big deal to me uh -huh. in the sense of, although like, you know, looking back, I can see why it might seem like that if one were to have a career in a single industry or even like previous generation, I think is a little bit different. You know, I have my uncle, for example, has been at the same company since he graduated college and, you know, he's, uh, almost 70 years old now. So maybe it's a generational thing as well, but it didn't seem like it was that big of a, a change. It was still critical thinking. The application was different, but you're still moving information around. You're still thinking critically. And instead of physics, you're using laws of economics. But other than that, it was, so it was definitely a huge learning experience and I was completely naive and ignorant when I started. So I don't want to underplay that, but from like, uh, from a how to do it perspective, it didn't seem that different, but of course the what to do was, was different. Uh-huh. Okay. So how did it lead you to co-founding the venture capital firm Also Capital? Oh, this one, this is, uh, so they're kind of unrelated. Also Capital okay. got started. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> a close friend of mine, Mike Annunziata, who is also a, uh, he's also a CEO of a company called Farther Farms. It's a agricultural tech company. And him and I have always found startups and kind of business ideas in general interesting. So we started emailing pitch decks back and forth from our friends from school or, you know, word of mouth. And to us, it was kind of like the equivalent of fantasy football, except instead of players, it was companies. And so we would, you know, talk about them and gossip about their strategies. And then eventually we we're like, hey, we found a couple that we thought were really cool. And, you know, we we asked to invest as as private angels. And then, you know, just from like word of mouth, discussing it with other friends and then this email. And so we would share on the email chain. And a lot of it was just like joking around on the email chain, swapping pitch decks. And eventually the email chain got pretty large and people got pretty serious. And we got kind of sophisticated because we were able to see 
you know, front row seat to all these small companies. We get the investor updates, we meet the founders and we learn from their mistakes. We learn from their successes. And, you know, next thing we knew we have, you know, we have over 20 companies now and wow. I think something like three and a half million dollars deployed and stuff like that. Just from like, uh, it's basically just a, was big email chain that just became more and more formal over time. That's amazing. And I love how you were we related it to like fantasy football so yeah. entrepreneurial of you yeah <laughs> okay so also capital is focusing on building a new class of skilled technology entrepreneurs as our economy involves so you say it's investing at the people stage so what does that really mean and why is it important to you yeah what it means is that when you start from ground zero of a, of a company, mm. there is literally nothing else to sell than the person's brain power. <laughs> and so when, when you invest at the pre-seed or a seed stage, and of course we were doing that because that's all we could afford at the time, there's really nothing else to invest in. It's not like they have assets. It's not like they have reoccurring revenue. There's no deals yet. And so you really are just investing in humans. And it's kind of interesting, you know, if you took that, you know, maybe someday with like more digital workforce maybe the American corporate structure starts to make a little bit less sense. And maybe you have your like funding ideas, but that, that's a whole nother philosophical, interesting question. But yeah, that's basically how we think about it is of course the idea matters and we, and we critique that and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, it's the, the person that this is the only physical mm -hmm. thing there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And okay. of course the why it's important, I guess. Oh, sorry. Just to finish the thought is I guess why it was important was because that is kind of an investment in a relationship as well that can go much further than potentially a failed company. You know, if, if, if we invest in someone and their first company fails, it's like, yeah, you know, we still think you're a great person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's so funny. Early stage startups, a lot of the investment is because of the person or the people, the team. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay, so moving on to Vada, where you are now. So you started Vada in 2020, and you co-founded it with Dillian Asperhoff. Yeah, and you Daniel pronounced Marshall. it correctly. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so talk a little bit about what brought you all together and how you came up with the idea for building the factories of the future in space. Yeah, so what brought us together was Dillian had been thinking about this idea for quite some time, uh, especially instigated by the fact that rocket launches were dropping in price. And so he is a principal at Founders Fund and was looking to do an incubation with this idea. And so he was combing his uh, uh, social network for potential founders. And uh, we have a mutual friend who referred me. And then uh, I guess I passed some of his background checks. So he, he gave me a call or I guess it was an email at first saying, you know, would you be interested in chatting? The idea of uh, moving across the country and trying to build a manufacturing operation in space is a, a good personality fit for me. So uh, we were fast friends after that. That's awesome. <laughs> so at the core of Vada Industries is a vision to build an in-space economy to improve life on Earth and beyond. So what are the benefits that you envision resulting from moving manufacturing to space? Yeah. So to answer that question, let me give some context first. So Please. there's four fundamental forces of physics. Gravity is one of them and all of engineering is built on top of them. So if you could turn off or modify gravity locally for a manufacturing process, that's a big deal. There's a lot of innovation on top of that. And so manufacturing in space almost by default or definition means that there's a lot of innovation to be had. Now, of course, it's very expensive to get to space. So that's always been the prohibitor uh, from manufacturing in, in space. 
but with launch costs dropping, there are now a first few products that are actually economical to produce in microgravity. And we basically only know that because we've stolen all the research from the International Space Station or, you know, used it. It's obviously in the public domain, so not really stolen. But and so we're super thankful for all that. We, we certainly couldn't do Varda without it. And so anyways, what the idea is that now that the, the uh, prices to space have have dropped, we can make those first few products and in turn drive launch cadence because we're we're creating economic demand, which will further lower launch costs because of economy or economies of scale from the launch providers, and which will lower the threshold of the unit economics we need in order for a product to be profitable. And so by making one thing in space, we enable the economy to make two things in space. And by making two things, we enable the economy to make four things. And so the idea is to lower the threshold of the, uh, now that we've just gotten below the threshold of unit economics for some products, we can push that price down by creating that positive feedback. And then really any manufacturing process that could benefit from being done in microgravity is now eligible because we've lit that flywheel. I mean, I'm still trying to get my head around that, honestly. (laughs) I, uh, I've, I've explained it better in the past, so I'm sorry. I was stumbling over myself <laughs> no, a little. No, it's not, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not that at all. It's just like how, like how do you even like see that opportunity, come up with the idea and make it possible? You know, that's, that's for somebody not in physics and not in engineering. It's just like that process is just mind-boggling. <laughs> it is kind of weird because it was like Delian instigated the idea. Mm. I kind of came up with the like how it would work in like from an engineering perspective. And then our product and materials team selected the first few products that would make the most sense given our strategy. So it's like the Varda manufacturing and space plan and long term plan kind of almost is a, an immersive or like a emerged from the collective uh, after Delian, uh, you know, called me up and said, manufacturing in space. And I was like, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. <laughs> so that's just crazy. I mean, but it just shows you too, the people stage, right? You guys all came right. together and really invested in that people stage. So that's just, exactly. That's, you know, exactly. Yeah. Seeing that opportunity. Okay. So something I wasn't aware of, and I'm sure many people may not be aware of that certain products such as a new life-saving pharmaceuticals can only be created in the consistent microgravity environment of low earth orbit, which can't be replicated on earth. So some of the things you just talked about, like, can you talk a little bit about this and some of the early research into concepts around the International Space Station that you stole ideas from? Like, so why is this, <laughs> this, why is this the case and what yeah. type of products are you currently looking into producing? Totally. Um, so there, many of the grants that have been given to run experiments on the International Space Station have been rationalized by saying, hey, when launch costs drop enough, this would be a cool product to make in space. And so the International Space Station has acted like this terrific research platform, but there's no commercial off-ramp for the products that are developed. And so that we're filling the gap at Varda to be that commercial off-ramp. Some of the most popular ones that have been done are in fiber optics, metal metallurgy, semiconductors, and as you mentioned, pharmaceuticals. For the pharmaceutical one, is a it's, it's basically just chemistry of drugs. And so um, I'll, I'll start with like a a, um, an easy to visualize example, and then get a little bit more technical. And you just tell me when to stop being too nerdy. So, Please go, uh, <laughs> go technical. <laughs> so the, the easy one to visualize is if you imagine a uh, balsamic vinaigrette dressing in your refrigerator, if 
you'll you'll notice it separates of course that's because the heavier elements in the dressing sink to the bottom so if you wanted to do a chemical reaction between two fluids and or a solution uh, that would separate like that uh, and for whatever reason you couldn't shake it because that would uh, harm the, the reaction that you're going for then one way to solve that would be to do the reaction in grav in microgravity or in zero gravity in orbit so that the two chemicals don't separate so so that's kind of the general trend so at the end of the day we just have a a unique way to manipulate chemistry that no other factory on earth has. And the one of the killer apps in pharmaceuticals is looking at crystallization. And so if you want to take a, a simple, like a, I'll give a, a simple example, like water, uh, it's a simple molecule, H2O. So uh, two hydrogen atoms, one oxygen atom. And since it's so simple, it only can stack in one way. And that's what we're familiar with as, as ice. And so but if you imagine a more complicated molecule, a chain a molecule with many, many atoms, and then you could imagine bending it in various ways to create and stack them in, in various ways. And so these more complex molecules can freeze, quote unquote, in different forms. And the form that the molecule freezes in depends on many things. Um, temperature, for example, pressure, the rate at which you're mixing something, the solution concentration, uh, the amount of this molecule that's in the solution. And so one of those, the mixing rate, is influenced in zero gravity because as something would freeze, it would either sink or float. It's also an endo or exothermic reaction, meaning that it releases or takes in heat and as we know on Earth, heat rises, but that's not the case in space because there is no real up or down in terms of gravity. And so you can create unique forms of crystallization of molecules in microgravity. And those, the, the way a molecule forms determines its macroscopic properties. For example, its dissolution rate or its solubility. So if you have a drug molecule that unfortunately you have to take the drug twice a day or take the pill twice a day because it dissolves too quickly, if you are able to produce a different form of the same drug, but in microgravity uh, would be one way to do so. And if that form has a lower solubility, then maybe you only have to take the pill once a day. So being having that okay. extra degree of freedom in determining how molecules coalesce is, is the application on Earth. I should have a follow-up question for that, but I don't know what to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What about semiconductors? You did mention semiconductors, and we all know that there's a shortage. Are you actually helping to solve that problem, or is there another application that you're working on? I don't think we could solve the shortage problem, at least not in the near term. Uh, maybe we can help augment it at the very, very small amount. Uh, the, the science that's been done on the International Space Station, and even here on Earth, without using microgravity, shows that you can anneal, which basically just means heat the semiconductor. And when you do so in a low gravity environment, it will remove some of the defects. And so you can get higher performing semiconductors if simply you just heat amazing. them for an amount of time Yeah, while in microgravity. That's amazing. Okay, so that was my um, science lesson for today, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, you know, these semiconductors are made of sand, essentially, the silicon, right? Okay. And so they're dirt cheap. So uh, one yeah. way to make to remove the defects is just throw the ones out with the defects. And so that's pretty cheap. And so it might not warrant the cost to go into space in the near term. Right. But once launch, that would be a great example as uh, one product that we wouldn't make economically today. But if we make the expensive ones today and drive launch costs lower as a result, then that would become an eligible application. 
Perfect. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about how a factory in orbit actually works and how would the manufacturing take place and how did the products get sent back to Earth? Oh, yeah. I'm super glad you asked this question because it's a common misconception or I guess not misconception, but the way I see it is a little bit different than the way it's visualized by the general public. So my guess based on, you know, rough calculations, basically, is that the first routine manufacturing operation in orbit or in space will be a distributed set of robotic satellites rather than one large space station like you would imagine a, a real, uh, an earth factory so uh what i imagine it will be is robotic satellites that are about roughly the uh, size of a smart car between a smart car and, and a school bus and, and the reason that size makes sense is because those are the common shapes of things that go on rockets that are available today and amazing yeah. And so we'll have several of those. Each one of them is essentially the robotics to produce a single product. So whether it be this uh, semiconductor furnace or a uh, bioreactor or just a single batch operation for a small molecule, that'll be in orbit. And then we ship up small capsules that are extremely cheap because they don't have to carry humans. We only make spacecraft for inanimate objects at Varda at the moment anyway. And uh, those spacecraft will take the raw materials to its corresponding satellite, whichever product it's producing, exchange the raw materials for finished product, and then deorbit. So very similar to how SpaceX resupplies the space station, except on a very small and distributed scale rather than one large expensive unit. Okay, so back in 2021, you announced that Varda Space Industries signed a launcher service agreement with SpaceX to launch its initial space factory abroad at SpaceX rideshare mission, deploying to low Earth orbit in 2023. What can you tell us about the plans for this mission and what you hope to accomplish? Yeah. So, yeah, we purchased that launch. So we're super excited. The launch is uh, SpaceX's Transporter 8 mission that goes up in uh, April yeah, of 2023, like you said. And that mission will be our first demonstration mission. So uh, it's bare bones, bare minimum to show that we can build a company that can put a thing in space and bring it back. It, it, although it will be, uh, you know, we uh, will not be, almost certainly anyway, not be able to sell the, the products that we bring back. It will be a demonstration that we as a team and as a company are able to manifest a routine manufacturing operation in space from a technical capability perspective. And I think there's only two other commercial companies that have ever brought something back from space, okay. SpaceX and Boeing. Of course, governments have done it, but it'll be pretty neat to be the third commercial entity to be able to ever bring something back from orbit little old Varda. And what the other cool thing about that too, is we're doing so in a, in a fundamentally different way than anyone else does it routinely. So, um, the things that routinely come back from space, you know, SpaceX's dragon, Russia has one called the Soyuz. The department of defense has one called the X 37 B and all of these re-entry vehicles are very expensive and large. And so, you know, in the case of dragon, it's human rated, and so ours is very small, cheap, and not human rated. So uh, we plug a hole in the market because not everything that has value to come from space to Earth requires human level of complexity. Right. But isn't that also the advantage of having a startup is that you find that gap in the market and build something for it 
And if you actually do it by 2023, you've done it in such a short period of time. So like little old Varda is not going to be little anymore, I imagine. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, no, yeah, you absolutely, absolutely couldn't agree more. Uh, the plugging the hole in the market aspect, I think, is a huge value proposition of Varda, even before you account for the manufacturing and space value prop. And doing it in short order, I think, is absolutely critical because mm. at the end of the day, our customers don't really care that we're going to space. Mm. They only care that we're turning off gravity for a single manufacturing process. And so, you know, in the space industry, it's okay to have a launch slip, you know, a week, you know, a month, hell, even a year, you know, it's not really frowned upon. But if you go to another industry and you deliver a package two hours late, you know, Mm. it doesn't really uh, cut the mustard. So in order for us to service industries external to our own, we need to be the trains leave on time all the time. Yeah. Amazing. Okay, so I'm going to switch gears a little bit, and it's um, talking about you as an entrepreneur and growing up and what you've learned. And that's two questions I ask all my guests, which I absolutely love. So what are some of the most important lessons you've learned in your career up until this point? Oh, geez, the most important. Uh, wow, I do not have a good answer for that. I'll just, I'll just, uh, I'll just ramble. Drinking the night before, <laughs> sophomore. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, let's see. I think one of them I'll say is like really – humbly seek truth and it Mm. allows you to grow and learn quickly and so if you can put uh, your ego aside and really adopt someone else's perspective and do so from a from a intent of curiosity and a desire to understand it helps learn it help it helps me anyway learn pretty quickly um and also uh do one of the roles that I play at Varda, which is being able to understand each technical discipline to, to an enough of an extent to help communicate them across departments. And so I've been able to kind of build that muscle from taking that mentality. So I guess that's probably, at least for my role today, really like almost getting really good at learning <laughs> is yeah. just pays so much dividends. And I, I guess that actually, I've seen that trend even before Varda is that I will spend an exorbitant amount of time, money, and effort in the pursuit of learning. And if you can get good at understanding what, where the value of different things to learn and where there is opportunity to learn, and then just dumping all all of your money into it, (laughs) it always seems to pay back. You know, they always say like a college education is a good investment, although I guess Silicon Valley doesn't really say that anymore, but I thought it was a (laughs) decent investment. (laughs) Well, well, I also love that, you know, learning like all parts of the company, even though not deeply, it gives you some empathy to other people's roles and and their challenges. So I think that's really important. And I always... Oh yeah, totally. I, I just couldn't agree more. Like I've had so much more appreciation for roles that I didn't have appreciation for in previous jobs. I remember we were interviewing, oh, uh, I didn't mean to cut you off by the way, but, uh, no, um, please go. I love this. Go. <laughs> uh, it was a funny story. We were interviewing some supply chain candidates at Varda and we were of course interviewing them because it's a huge need of the company and it's a, a total lever arm that makes the company successful. And so that's why we opened the position. And when we were bringing some of them in, one of them I had worked with previously and I had this, I don't, I, I couldn't remember the specific time, but I had this gut feeling that I was probably too abrasive one time when interacting with well. this person because I was like, I need the parts to get on the, you know, to build the thing, to put on the rocket, like get me the parts. And I was like, man, you know, now that I've walked, uh, you know, a mile in this person's shoes, mm. I am so much more appreciative for the skills and so much more appreciative for how hard every role is 
I'll notice that if someone uses the word just and like, oh, all we have to do is just X, Y, Z. I'm like, oh, there's nuances there. That's like it sends a red, a red flag off in my head that we have to look into this uh, a little bit more. Rarely does brushing over work or problems actually mean that they're easy. <laughs> you know, I think what you just said, there's probably a lot of leadership lessons there, right? Like just never say just, or if someone just says just, it's, you're not being really empathetic to somebody else's role. And, and just even learning, I think that's really important. And I try to talk to my team about this. We're always going to be learning and never stop trying to learn. So I think that's also really important for a leader and their teams. Okay. Um, so other, other two last questions I lied. I said there's three, oh, just two, but I have two more after that. Um, no, what, what advice would you give to your younger self? <laughs> oh man. Uh, that is a really good question. I should ask myself I get that, that more a lot. often. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one just to have like in a routine habit. Let's see. I would say, um, mm. Ooh, um, I'll just pull up my performance report and, uh, (laughs) uh, yeah. So, uh, one of them I would say is like knowing to optimize for the right thing. So lots of times, Mm. like I've in the past thought of, oh, there's a problem or there are things that I can fix, but not necessarily weighting or indexing those things correctly. And if just one is on fire for at the moment, you know, oh, go put out the fire, but you could actually go and, you know, water this larger tree or, you know, something of that nature. So I guess the the moral of the story is, yeah, figure out what you're really optimizing for and solve those problems accordingly. That's one piece of advice I'd give my former self. And then I guess another one, let's see, would be Oh, uh, learning how to say no or uh, stop something without being, you know, with with uh, as much respect as possible. You know, it's it's difficult to say no to someone's idea if they're really passionate about it or what they want to do. But you have to do that as a as a CEO uh, quite frequently. And so, being able to do so um, in a very respectful way and an empathetic way and is uh, something I would tell my former self for sure. Okay, so that that one last question, I promise. Is there anything you would have done differently? Oh, that's interesting. That's such a hard (laughs) question to answer because like, I don't know how to factor in luck. And I've had like, for all the times that Mm. I've gotten lucky, I might not actually do that thing again or roll the dice again. But if I knew that I was going to get lucky again, I would do it. Uh, (laughs) So it's tough to, to like take out the luck aspect. Let's see. Was there anything I would do differently? Oh, I would probably take more software classes. Yeah. As an electrical engineer, I thought it was, it was pretty neat. And I was coming from physics. So it was like, oh, first I learned about the physics. Then I learned about the electrical. Then I'll get to software. But I wish I had done software a little bit earlier. I think there was a, uh, you know, I, I did it kind of on my own and later in life. And all the software I wrote, or even as a hobby, right. is just total garbage. So everything I build in the software domain kind of works. Just enough to be cool and not enough to actually be useful. So I w- <laughs> that would have been, been a good idea. Okay. At least it gives you some empathy yes. in software uh, yeah, developers, absolutely. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. So thanks so much, Phil. I had so much fun. I knew this was going to be a fun podcast. I didn't realize how fun it was going to be, but I learned a lot and I can't wait to see the final output. So thanks for joining us. <laughs> absolutely. Anytime. Thanks again. <laughs> huge thanks to Will for being on the show. It was so great seeing him and exploring the idea of building factories in space to produce products for Earth. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us and leave us a review or share the show with a friend. 
And if you haven't subscribed, please do now so that you never miss an episode. I'm your host, Renette Yusuf, and this has been Laser Focused, where together we innovate without compromise. Thank you.